BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Oh, well, hello there. Who would have thought I would be back here revisiting Atlantis so soon? This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Uh, Now, I am here today with something a little bit different. I'd originally intended for today's episode to start my new series on Aristophanes' Thesmophoria Zeusai, but, well, that's been pushed to next week. It's a little bit because, frankly, I'm taking a much-needed week off, but it's more because, well... 
Atlantis is back in the so-called news again, and I am here to remind the world why searching for it is not only a pointless endeavor, but one rooted in racism and white supremacy. Atlantis wasn't ever real. There is no debate about this amongst people who actually pay attention to the sources and the evidence and are educated in the ancient world. Plato made it up. He makes that super clear, and honestly, no one in the ancient world ever questioned it or ever believed it. They all knew what he was doing. I don't know why we can't wrap our heads around it. It was an invention, an allegory, a narratological device to prove a point about tyranny and governing in Athens. There was no ancient apocalypse, no Ice Age civilization lost to time. There was no Atlantis. If there were, again, there would be actually material evidence. And because it's not only this new documentary, that's in air quotes, it's not a documentary, Ancient Apocalypse, that's claiming Atlantis, among other absurd things, but also some YouTuber who doesn't care for actual evidence, and he's claiming it, it's the eye of the Sahara right now. It is just going off. Atlantis is popping off. And so here I am to remind you all why. <sighs> just so many things. I mean, just wait. Well, you'll listen to it. Archaeologists are hiding something. That's what they're always saying, right? Why would they do that? It would make their careers if they were to prove it or share the truth that they're so apparently hiding. It's nonsense. Anyway, I mean, at least the claim about the Eye of Sahara, this, which is a natural formation, but it's seriously cool and beautiful. Uh, definitely not Atlantis. Like, at least it is on the right continent or like near it. At least someone's claiming it's Africa. Though I know nothing about anything more about that argument, because, again, what is the point? It's all nonsense. So in an effort to counter these new and exciting bits of extreme misinformation, I am here to remind you all of the Atlantis series that I created last year. It seems I was a bit of ahead of the game, actually, since Atlantis is now all over everything. So we're bringing it back. Today's episode is all three narrative episodes that were devoted to Atlantis, which originally aired in January of last year. I'm bringing them back to you. It's been a full year and a lot of people need a reminder, so hopefully this finds them. <laughs> There's also uh, been a recent episode of the CBC Ideas podcast, which speaks about Atlantis in its current conspiratorial context, and it's super good. It even features one of the guests that I've had on my show, the wonderful Steph Homhofer, and a guest who will be appearing soon to speak specifically about uh, ancient apocalypse, John Hoops. I highly recommend that podcast episode as well. That's the CBC Ideas. Uh, I think the word Atlantis is in the title. <laughs> so check that out if you want to know more about why it's in the news relating to that Netflix show, which I will also get to soon after my much needed week off. Now in this island of Atlantis, there was a great and wonderful empire which had rule over the whole island and several others, and over parts of the continent, and furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles, as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. This vast power gathered into one endeavored to subdue and blow our country and yours, and the whole of the region within the straits, 
And then, Solon, your country, shone forth in the excellent of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill, and was the leader of the Hellenes. And when the rest fell off from her, being compelled to stand alone after having undergone the very extremity of danger, she defeated and triumphed over the invaders, and preserved from slavery those who were not yet subjugated, and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars. But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. Let's talk about Atlantis. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, here with the first ever special season of episodes. Because what else could I do if I was going to cover the story of Atlantis? If you're going to hear the story of Atlantis from me, you're going to hear about it the right way. The right way being, well, through the eyes of the actual ancient Greek sources. This is the first episode in a special series of episodes that I have been working towards for ages and ages and ages. It started way back in the day as me wanting to tell you all the myth of the lost island of Atlantis. Like most of you, I grew up learning the idea that Atlantis was a myth, specifically a Greek myth, in the same vein as the Minotaur in the Labyrinth or Homer's Odyssey. Popular culture has certainly led us to believe they're cut from the same cloth, that just like the Minotaur in the Labyrinth and Homer's Odyssey come from a long tradition of oral storytelling that changed and grew more intricate as time went on, before it was finally written down into what we have today, we're led to believe that just like that Labyrinth and the Odyssey, Atlantis was a part of oral storytelling culture of ancient Greece. We're not meant to believe that there truly was a minotaur in a labyrinth on Crete, or that Odysseus really did meet with the Cyclops Polyphemus, let alone Scylla and Charybdis or the cannibal Lystragonians. We are meant to understand them for what they were, stories told by traveling bards over generations, changed and adapted to suit the regions where the stories were being sung, meant to hype up the people, to remind them that they were descended from great heroes of old. So surely, with how widespread an idea the story of Atlantis is, how often searches for the lost city are publicized, or how often maritime archaeological finds are attributed in, granted, non-academic sources, as being Atlantis itself, surely, due to all that, it was a myth in ancient Greece, a story told amongst these ancient people, surely it's at least that. I mean, there's even a Disney movie. Surely all of that means Atlantis was a Greek myth, that it really was in the vein of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth or Odysseus and his Odyssey. Surely they're equivalent types of stories. Alas, they are absolutely not. Atlantis is none of those things. And that's what makes it so interesting and weird and... We'll get there. 
Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be bringing you a series of special episodes. And by special, I mean, well, I plan them in advance and set out to dedicate these three whole weeks to this story, this idea, this... Well, we'll get there. But it's also special because, well, spoilers, Atlantis is absolutely not a Greek myth in any sense of the word. So for these episodes, the podcast is really better called Let's Talk About Things Plato Invented to Make a Point. But we'll get there. I've prepared some of the most research-heavy episodes I've ever done for this podcast, diving into the original sources, the nonsensical notions that have spawned from those original sources, and beyond. We're going to look at what the story of Atlantis actually is, what it has become, and the ramifications of that. Because, well, it gets darker than you could ever possibly imagine. And that's why I'm finally doing this. It's also why I'm covering Atlantis in the way that I am. There's nothing inherently wrong with being interested in Atlantis, with researching the original sources, with thinking about it in an ancient context. But over the past couple hundred years, interest in Atlantis and belief in Atlantis has shifted. It's now full of so-called archaeologists who ignore the facts of the ancient world in order to fit the narrative they've already got in their heads. And even worse, it's full of conspiracy theorists who, more often than not, have links to dangerous racist ideologies, if not outright Nazism. Yeah, bet you didn't see that coming. But hey, we'll get there. I've spoken with experts in archaeology of the region as well as archaeological experts in pseudo-archaeology, that is, something that presents itself as scientific and archaeological but is, in fact, only looking to prove a predetermined belief. These are the people studying real archaeology and speaking out against these often racist pseudo-archaeological endeavors, things like searches for Atlantis or ancient aliens, notions that seem innocuous, even funny, until you realize what it all comes down to. Straight up racism. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be bringing you six episodes, plus two fun bonus episodes, work I'm so beyond proud of. These episodes are important and fascinating, and they're education that people can't easily find on their own. I'm so thrilled to be able to bring them to you. I have done all the hard work learning the truth, so you just get to learn it the fun way. I've been looking forward to this for ages, and I've finally been able to make it happen. Atlantis, guys. It's truly something else. I'm going to tell you every tiny thing there is to know about the ancient concept of Atlantis and all the ways that concept has been taken to a whole other world. There is simultaneously so, so much to say about Atlantis, even though ultimately from an ancient perspective and certainly from a mythological one, there is absolutely nothing at all to say about Atlantis. Intrigued? I certainly hope so. It is going to be a wild ride. This is episode 150, Deconstructing Atlantis Part 1, Finding Atlantis in the Depths of Plato's Imagination. Atlantis. 
what do we all picture when we think of Atlantis? The first thing that comes to mind is probably the myth of a lost city within the depths of the sea, right? Or maybe you think about an incredibly technologically advanced civilization that was lost to an earthquake and a flood. Maybe you think about Thera, the island in Greece that was destroyed by a world-changing volcanic eruption during the Bronze Age. What's left of it is now Santorini. Maybe you're like me and obsessively play Assassin's Creed Odyssey, so you're thinking of the final bit of the Atlantis DLC. Or maybe you simply think of the Disney movie, Milo and all his dreams and schemes that were for so long ignored. At the absolute worst, you might just imagine the Jason Momoa movie Aquaman, but I would really prefer if you didn't think of that one at all. I kid, kind of. I hear that movie's really bad. It's pretty hard to have existed in the last century or so, at least in the English-speaking world, and not have a few thoughts and ideas about the lost city of Atlantis. You've heard of it, at least, or you've seen movies, TV shows, video games, books, and even documentaries about this famed lost city. With the amount we've all been inundated with Atlantis lore over the years, surely it must have been a very famous and important Greek myth, right? Or a story. Or history. I mean, that's absolutely what I thought. I thought that right up until I went to research it for the show all the way at the beginning of last year. That's when I realized it was going to take more than just a standard episode. The quote I read at the top of this episode is one of the few ancient references to Atlantis. There is only one ancient source that really mentions Atlantis. Only one. One single source. Take that in for a moment, because it's important. Before we dive too deep into sourcing and evidence and what it means for something to have only one surviving reference in the whole of antiquity, let's go over the idea of Atlantis as it exists in the one single source in which Atlantis is ever mentioned. Over the next three Tuesday episodes, I'm going to be talking about the story of Atlantis from a number of angles. Like I said, we will go over what it means that it only has this one source, but today is focusing on the story itself and how it differs from, well, everything else I talk about on this show ever, particularly the mythology and storytelling and history. So what was the deal with Atlantis, when it comes to ancient references, at least? To start, I'll give you another direct quote from that source, because you will know how much I like reading directly from sources. In fact, in today's episode, there's going to be a lot of reading from this source and breaking down what exactly the source is claiming, because, like I said, this source is all we have when it comes to Atlantis. As always, my sources are in the episode's description. In this case, you can read these whole pieces for free online. I've linked to them. Our ancient source begins, quote, Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war which was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Heracles and all who dwelt within them. This war I am going to describe. Of the combatants on the one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as I was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia, and when afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. 
Now, you might have noticed that sounds nothing like the regular sources I read from. There's no sing-songy poetry or storytelling. It's no Homeric hymn, let alone Homer. That's because, spoilers, Atlantis doesn't appear in any Greek myths or traditional stories or epic poems or historical sources or any sources that discussed things like mythology or storytelling or epic poetry or history. Atlantis appears in just Plato. And in just one small section in the whole of Plato's prolific surviving writings, Plato the philosopher, who lived between the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. That's right, Plato and only Plato, and only this one time in Plato. That is the million dollar point here, so tuck that in your brain pockets, we'll come back to it. This text by Plato, the philosopher, was written in the form of a dialogue. This is how Plato framed his philosophical writings and theories, through fictionalized conversations between people, the people themselves being both real and imaginary. Plato himself was rarely, if ever, a party in these fictional conversations, and they usually took place many decades before he wrote them, and included Socrates, who was Plato's teacher and mentor and who was long dead by the point of this writing. Or... To remind you all the joke coined by classics meme guy Ben in a previous episode of this podcast, Socrates was invented by Plato to sell more philosophy. The dialogues in question, the Timaeus and the Critias, are from quite late in the grand scheme of Plato's writing, about 15 years after one of his most famous works, The Republic. But they're quite connected with The Republic. Broadly, The Republic is Plato laying out his notion of what would be an ideal state, now, this is not a philosophy podcast, thank God, so we're not diving into that. But it's important because the idea of an ideal state and ideal society is revisited in the Timaeus, and in the Critias is then presented in example through the story of a war between prehistoric cities. Together, the Timaeus and the Critias make up the entirety of ancient writing about Atlantis, and Atlantis isn't even part of much of the former, which was concerned with a number of issues. The idea of Atlantis existing at all is briefly introduced in the Timaeus and fleshed out in the Critias, both works that present a dialogue between a few people. The Timaeus comes as a response to Socrates' rehashing of the idea of a so-called ideal state, which, like I said, is found in more detail in Plato's Republic. Basically, we're to believe that Socrates has just described his ideal state, but he thinks he maybe didn't tell it in an exciting enough way, so well, perhaps those around him could add to it. The least important man in these dialogues, a man named Hermocrates, says that Critias knows just the story. Critias agrees, introducing the story of Atlantis in the section I read at the top of the episode, before they agree that this story will actually have to come after Timaeus tells his bit about the origin of the universe and humanity. Thus, the majority of the story of Atlantis exists in the Critias dialogue that follows the Timaeus. The quote I read at the very beginning is a part of the bit about Atlantis that appears in the Timaeus, and it acts sort of as like a teaser before the big story comes in the Critias. The biggest reason why this story of Atlantis is sometimes presented as historical is that Plato did use real people in his dialogues, or he used the names of real people. The timeline, though, just doesn't check out. By the time he'd written this, Socrates was long dead, like decades dead, as well as Critias, who tells the story itself. He's also part of a line of Critiases, so it's debated who this was even meant to represent. And Timaeus, meanwhile, may or may not have been a real guy. Or 
Alternatively, the story of Atlantis is sometimes believed to be in the vein of oral storytelling, like I mentioned earlier, like Homer or Hesiod, except there's zero evidence for that either. No mention of Atlantis appears before Plato used it to make this point, and no reference exists in art or pottery or, well, anywhere. Next week, I'll go into more detail about what all of that means. Today, the story itself. Now, the other quote I've already read from is from the Critias, where Plato, through the mouth of Critias, is about to really dive into Atlantis. So let's go over the details in that quote again. Critias says, quote, Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war which was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Heracles and all who dwelt within them. This war I'm going to describe. Of the combatants, on the one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants, on the other side, were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as I was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia, and when afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. Unquote. Okay, so first off, and most importantly, Critias here is saying that it's been 9,000 years since the story they're about to tell happened. 9,000 years before Plato's time, which was early 4th century BCE, so we're talking almost 12,000 years from now, give or take. That's a really long time ago. Now, in defense of this, technically the story being told by Plato through these dialogues if it were real, would have taken place a few decades earlier, so not a big difference, but I want to make sure I'm giving you all the details. Okay, so it's been 9,000 years, and apparently there were two groups of people, one that resided within the Pillars of Heracles and one that resided outside of them. Now, Plato is using ancient terms here, so let me break it down for you in terms of modern regions. The Pillars of Heracles refers to the Strait of Gibraltar, that narrow bit of sea between Spain and the continent of Africa. Libya, meanwhile, refers to much of North Africa when it comes to Greek writing. Basically, as much of Africa as they knew existed. They called it Libya. Now, that isn't necessarily helpful information because we're about to discover that this story is also about the continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe changing pretty drastically. Case in point, according to Critias in Plato's dialogue, Atlantis was an island that was greater in extent than Africa and Asia. An island bigger than Africa and Asia. Now, some people immediately say that this means he's talking about the Americas. No. The island is meant to be just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, not an Atlantic Ocean away, as we'll get into in a moment. They simply did not have the capability to cross the Atlantic, and that is not what he is talking about. Yeah, so the supposed evidence is getting less and less believable, but let's keep going. Next, let's revisit the quote I shared at the very beginning of the episode, from the Timaeus, the first time Atlantis is mentioned, because there's something important in there. In that dialogue, Critias says, quote, The men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. 
So like I've already clarified, the columns or pillars of Heracles is the Strait of Gibraltar. Libya is North Africa, and this newly mentioned region, Tyrrhenia, I'm assuming is basically Italy. That's because the Tyrrhenian Sea is the sea on the western side of Italy, off Rome. There's your confirmation. Plato is not saying that a city in the Americas also controlled much of Africa and Europe in 12,000 BCE. That is, quite simply, absurd. These points make it very clear where Plato's Critias says Atlantis was. According to the earlier quote, the island is just beyond the Strait of Gibraltar in the Atlantic Ocean. But the kingdom seems to have spanned North Africa all the way to Egypt and Europe from the Strait of Gibraltar to Italy. This distinction is important for all the reasons I just said. Notably, because in the Timaeus, as you heard earlier, we're also explicitly told that Atlantis was, quote, afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. But now that we know the region in question, let's go back to the Critias dialogue. Remember, that last bit was from the Timaeus, the teaser to the wider story of Atlantis that's told in the Critias. I know it's a bit confusing because these dialogues are named for the men in them, but both men appear in both dialogues. Basically, the Timaeus is about a lot of things to do with humanity in the beginning of it with a hint at Atlantis, whereas the Critias is all about Atlantis itself. In both cases, it's a man named Critias who is actually telling the story of Atlantis. But also... Plato invented the whole dialogue. Plato makes our lives very confusing. In the Critias dialogue, Critias explains the size and general location of Atlantis, but he also says something very important. He says, quote, This war I am going to describe, of the combatants on one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis. Okay, so again, we're talking about 12,000 years ago, making the time period straight up the Stone Age, and Critias is talking about the city of Athens. Huh. That sounds new, doesn't it? When you think of the Atlantis we've heard about in pop culture, in movies, and documentaries, and wherever else, you hear about Atlantis, but do you ever hear about not only Athens existing at the same time period as Atlantis, but Athens also going to war with Atlantis? I certainly never had. Milo's not talking about Athens in that precious Disney movie. But before we get too deep into questioning the Athens of it all, first and foremost, when one hears 12,000 years in the past, we should be asking, okay, for real though, if this were a true story, how on earth do these people know of it? That is truly the million dollar question. So according to the earlier dialogue, the Timaeus were told that Critias heard it from his grandfather, who heard it from his father, who was a friend of Solon, the Athenian statesman, who heard it from some Egyptian priests who have, it seems, kept record of such things. Still, remember, no other real text reference to Atlantis exists, in Greece or Egypt or otherwise, or any visual representation, for that matter. Continuing on with the Critias, from here Critias goes on to explain not anything to do with this mystical lost city of Atlantis, but instead he describes in great detail the prehistoric Athens that went to war with Atlantis, 
Because, another spoiler, the entire point of the story of Atlantis is that they went to war with Athens, and Athens is actually the city to be emulated. Athens is the good guy, and Atlantis is the bad guy. Unexpected, right? So Critias speaks about this prehistoric Athens, this Athens that supposedly existed 12,000 years ago. Now, let's hear about this extra-ancient Athens, this Neolithic Athens, which was, quote, Inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artisans, and there were husbandsmen, and there was also a warrior class originally set apart by divine men. The latter dwelt themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education. Neither had any of them anything of their own, but they regarded all that they had as common property, nor did they claim to receive the other citizens anything more than their necessary food. Unquote. Hmm. Sounding less and less Neolithic, isn't it? But let's keep going. Critias goes on to explain that what's left of Attica, the region of Greece where Athens is, is very different from what it was back then. He suggests there was not only more land, but a more fertile land, but that many deluges happened in the intervening years. This is a way to link the story to actual mythological traditions of Greece, where the flood story featuring Deucalion and Pyrrha is a humanity origin story. If you're curious, I've linked to my episode on that story in this one's description. Through Critias, Plato describes this Neolithic Athens, saying that the Acropolis Hill extended past the Peniques and to the Lycabetus, two other hills still in Athens now. He describes how people lived, the temples and buildings. It's extensive, really, this description, and super familiar and detailed. It's almost as if it's modeled after the classical Athens in which Plato lived. It is. Still, he goes on. Once he's described in detail the visual representations of this prehistoric Athens, he finishes his introduction to these Neolithic Athenians with, quote, This is how they dwelt, being the guardians of their own citizens and the leaders of the Hellenes, who were their willing followers. And they took care to preserve the same number of men and women through all time, being so many as were required for warlike purposes, then, as now, that is to say, about 20,000. Such were the ancient Athenians, and after this manner they righteously administered their own land and the rest of Hellas. They were renowned all over Europe and Asia for the beauty of their persons and for the many virtues of their souls, and of all the men who lived in those days, they were the most illustrious. Unquote. If this isn't classical Athenian propaganda with a dash of eugenics, I'm not sure what is. Note, not only the showy language, the excessive flattery, and the unrealistic and certainly ahistorical descriptions of governance, but also the complete lack of any king or official ruler. Athens, you see, ruled itself. And remember, he still hasn't talked about Atlantis in any detail. But once he's laid out how brilliant and incredible and important and virtuous and illustrious and renowned and beautiful these prehistoric Athenians in Athens were, he determines he can move on to tell his listeners about their adversaries in the war, the kings of Atlantis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Before we, alongside Plato's Critias, move on to explaining Atlantis, he's got something to note real quick. Critias prefaces his story of Atlantis by saying, Now, you guys might notice that the names I'm going to use to refer to the Atlanteans are Greek names, and you might think, whoa, why is that? Well, Critias says, it's because Solon, who heard from the Egyptian priests, who heard from who knows who, or maybe they read it in records that we have no surviving reference to, Anyway, Solon read these names, but they'd been translated into Egyptian, so then when he read them, he translated them into Greek, so you know they sound Greek, even though we're talking about a totally different world and language and time period and whatever. Anyway, you know, FYI, I guess, is basically what Critias says. Sure. 
He goes on, finally diving into the story of this lost city of Atlantis. Interestingly, it begins with gods in a way the story of Athens doesn't, and I think this is notable. Athens, Plato via Critias, does introduce as the city of Athena and Hephaestus, because that's true to their city's mythological narrative, but he doesn't give them credit for everything in the way he's about to give Poseidon credit for much of Atlantis. Poseidon, mind you. Poseidon, the god whose stories primarily involve him assaulting women and little else. Poseidon, who notably lost the competition for the naming rights of Athens, where Athena beat him out to become the patron goddess of the city. That it is Poseidon in Atlantis versus Athena in Athens is not accidental or unintentional. So, Critias tells us, Poseidon was given as his domain the region which would become Atlantis. There, on a mountain, lived a man and his wife and their daughter, Cleto. Poseidon, surprise, surprise, wanted Cleto. Plato, through Critias, tells us that, quote, Poseidon fell in love with her and had intercourse with her, and breaking the ground, enclosed the hill in which she dwelt all round, making alternate zones of sea and land larger and smaller, encircling one another. There were two of land and three of water, which he turned as with a lathe, each having its circumference equidistant every way from the center, so that no man could get to the island, for ships and voyages were not as yet. He himself, being a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island, bringing up two springs of water from beneath the earth, one of warm water and the other of cold, and making every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the soil. Unquote. Honestly, it should be proof enough that this isn't actually a myth simply because Poseidon is described as actually falling in love with a woman and working for her affection rather than straight up assaulting her. Whereas in traditional mythology, one time he assaults a woman and then gives her a little freshwater spring as thanks. But suddenly we're to believe he's falling in love and giving a woman a specially built city? Please. Though not remotely the point of today's episode, this is a good example of how this story is told not like a myth, not like a piece of oral storytelling that's been written down or a hymn to the gods. It's being told to prove an unrelated point. We're told that Poseidon keeps up his building of this city with the help of a whole lot of kids that he has with Cleto, including five pairs of twin male children. Five sets of twins! Okay, so the oldest of the oldest sets of twins is a man named Atlas. He's where they get the name for the city, as Poseidon installs him as kind of the number one king. These children each ruled sections of the city, with Atlas in the center, and they passed these on to their children when they died, and so on and so on and so on, down generations. Atlantis, we're told, was very rich in basically everything— Orichalcum was big, a mysterious alloy that seems to have been a real thing, but also in this case is described as being lost. It doesn't really matter. The point is the city was rich, and what they were most rich in no longer existed by the time Plato is talking about this. Honestly, most of this doesn't matter for my point, but I know you all will be interested in hearing this description of Atlantis. Plato used a hell of a lot of words to make what is ultimately a fairly simple point— but we'll get there. The palace at the center of the city where they most wanted to show off their riches is described in this quote. 
At the very beginning, they built the palace in the habitation of the god and of their ancestors, which they continued to ornament in successive generations, every king surpassing the one who went before him to the utmost of his power, until they made the building a marvel to behold for size and for beauty. Continuing this description, Plato, through the voice of Critias, tells us about some of the waterways that were built, because the city was meant to be quite connected with the water, it's an island after all, and we're meant to understand that at this point, many generations of mortals have passed. And so he says, quote, They divided at the bridges the zones of land which parted the zones of sea, leaving room for a single trireme to pass out of one zone into another, and they covered over the channel so as to leave a way underneath for the ships. Unquote. Take that in. So we're now meant to believe they had triremes and ships 12,000 years ago. Okay. Remember, the works attributed to Homer were written down probably in the 7th or 6th centuries BCE, with the understanding that that had the Trojan War taken place, it would have been in the Bronze Age, so generally the 11th or maybe 12th centuries BCE. Meanwhile, this would have been the 9th or 10th millennium BCE, like the 100th century BCE-ish. Yeah. Moving on, Plato, through Critias, continues this description of Atlantis with an emphasis on wealth. It is all about how showy this city was, how exorbitant their wealth was, and how they showed it off. He speaks of a temple to Poseidon and Cleto that was cut off from everyone else, and another temple to Poseidon was, quote, a stadium in length and half a stadium in width and of a proportionate height, having a strange barbaric appearance. All the outside of the temple, with the exception of the pinnacles, they covered with silver and the pinnacles with gold. In the interior of the temple, the roof was ivory, curiously wrought everywhere with gold and silver and orichalcum and all the other parts, the walls and pillars and floor, they coated with orichalcum. The wealth and pride in that wealth is the point. From here, Critias moves on to describing their military prowess, another instance where everything he talks about sounds a lot more like the classical period, Plato's time, or maybe to stretch it, the Archaic period, than it does even the Bronze Age, let alone the Neolithic period. Here's a bit to give you an idea. Quote, The leader was required to furnish for the war the sixth portion of a war chariot, so as to make up a total of 10,000 chariots, also two horses and riders for them, and a pair of chariot horses without a seat, accompanied by a horseman who could fight on foot, carrying a small shield, and having a charioteer who stood behind the man-at-arms to guide the two horses— Also, he was bound to furnish two heavy-armed soldiers, two archers, two slingers, three stone shooters, and three javelin men, who were light-armed, and four sailors to make up the complement of 1,200 ships. 
Like I said, the technology here sounds pretty much like Greece during Plato's lifetime rather than 9,000 years prior, but the most notable and relevant piece is actually the volume of Atlanteans that were said to make up their military. It's meant to stand in direct contrast to the explicit 20,000 people who lived in this utopian Athens of the same time. Athens was an ideal state run by the people where everyone was happy and had what they needed. Again, with a dash of eugenics because it's Plato, but we get to ignore that right now. He meant it to be ideal. Whereas Atlantis was this enormous military power with endless more people and wealth run by kings. The connection to the Greeks during the Persian Wars here is explicit too. Persia was the power with tens of thousands more soldiers, whereas Greece, and here explicitly Athens, prevailed with their much smaller army. It is meant to be very similar, as Athens will prevail in the war with Atlantis. Still, Plato, through Critias, doesn't spend too much time on their military. Their number and skill and weaponry is the point. Before he moves on to their leadership, another of his primary points. There are said to be ten kings of Atlantis, all descended from Poseidon, who each have their own regions to govern. Quote, Each of the ten kings in his own division and his own city had the absolute control of the citizens and, in most cases, of the laws, punishing and slaying whomsoever he would. Unquote. In moving on, we shift to the cruelness is the point, the absolute power of these kings as a direct contradiction to the Athens described earlier. All of this is meant to show a distinction between the two. Athens was run by the people. It was beautiful, but not over the top. They weren't showing off their wealth, but living in a means that was appropriate to them, that kept the gods happy, and the citizens comfortable and thriving amongst themselves, without the need for any king holding absolute power. Not like Atlantis, which is full of hubris and pride and its people existing to be subjected to these ten kings who could punish or kill whoever they wished. Still, though their wealth and absolute power was the point of the story itself, Plato does make clear that this didn't make them bad, at least not in the beginning. He says, actually, at first, they were virtuous, and though they were exorbitantly rich in gold, they didn't care for it, and in fact saw it as a burden. This is an odd contradiction given he's just described their cities as being rich and decorated in a means of displaying that richness to everyone, but it's on purpose. He's clear here. They were virtuous, at least for a while. But over time, they got caught up in their own hubris, their greed, their wealth, and their power. The point being, if they hadn't had those things to begin with, even if they'd begun as a virtuous society, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to have the pride and the hubris and that greed take over. This next one is a long quote, but it's important. But they were sober and saw clearly that all these goods are increased by virtue and friendship with one another, whereas by too great regard and respect for them, they are lost in friendship with them. By such reflections and by the continuance in them of a divine nature, the qualities which we have described grew and increased among them. But when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture, 
and the human nature got the upper hand, they then, being unable to bear their fortune, behaved unseemly, and to him who had an eye to see grew visibly debased, for they were losing the fairest of their precious gifts. But to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they appeared glorious and blessed at the very time when they were full of avarice and unrighteous power. Zeus, the god of gods who rules according to law and is able to see into such things, perceiving that an honorable race was in a woeful plight and wanting to inflict punishment on them, that they might be chastened and improve, collected all the gods into their most holy habitation, which, being placed in the center of the world, beholds all created things. And when he had called them together, he spoke as follows. And, well, that's it. That's the entirety of the Critias, the fictional dialogue written by Plato to discuss both an ideal society and one that begins ideal and then descends into hubris. It isn't, obviously, the entirety of what Plato intended to write, or even what he wrote at the time, necessarily, but it's certainly all that survives today. And yes, it cuts off right before we hear what Zeus is about to say. The Timaeus and the Critias of Plato were meant to be part of a trilogy. The Timaeus survives in its entirety, describing the origins of the universe and humanity, and giving us just a hint of Atlantis itself. The Critias exists up to this point, just as Atlantis is beginning to decline, when their civilization was becoming too hubristic, too full of themselves, too impious due to their own power and wealth, when the Ten Kings were becoming tyrannical. Zeus is about to punish them for it, and then the rest is lost or unfinished. Of course, we already heard at the beginning that Atlantis was lost to an earthquake, so the implication here is that Zeus is about to convene a meeting of the gods to discuss Atlantis, and they will, eventually, be punished with a city-destroying earthquake, presumably, in the end, sent by Poseidon himself, their father, as he's the god of earthquakes. But it seems not before they fight a war with Athens. Because remember, that too comes at the beginning of the story. The whole point of it, the entire purpose of this dialogue, is to detail this perfect utopian Athens who would go to war against the increasingly tyrannical and hubristic Atlantis. This state that will be condemned by the gods. This is what's so fascinating to me, given what the idea of Atlantis is now. Atlantis was not the good guys. They were the bad guys. They were greedy and they grew too powerful and too proud and they were taken down by Athens in a war. Athens, who is meant to be this perfect ideal state. It's fucking wild what this story has become. There are just so many glaringly obvious reasons why this is just a story invented by Plato to make a point about an ideal society and how to run a city. It simply isn't about Atlantis being real or not. It's about making a point about their hubris and their leadership in comparison to that of the Athenians. It's presented simply in the way that Plato liked to present his theories, as if they were real conversations. But not to worry, I'll break all of this and more down for you in the coming episodes. You don't have to take my word for it. Because next week, 
How Plato uses fictional storytelling as allegory for philosophical theorizing. We look at history, mythology, ancient text sources, and archaeological sources. But before that, on Friday's episode, I spoke with archaeologist Flint Dibble all about Mediterranean archaeology, Bronze Age archaeology, and earlier, and what we do know about what did and did not exist in the region in the Bronze Age and earlier. We talked about Plato and what it means that Plato is the only source to reference Atlantis. And, well, we talked about the dangerous conspiracies that have arisen and why pseudo-archaeology is more dangerous than it is silly. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to be bringing you this special series of episodes. Atlantis is fascinating to me, but less so because of the story of the city itself and more because of what it has become. That will be the focus of much of the rest of this series. I realize it's different. It's not storytelling in the same way, but I think it's equally fascinating, and I think you will agree. I really struggled with how to cover Atlantis. I wanted it to be fun and silly, and I wanted to be able to tell you all the story before I dove into how it doesn't fit as a myth or history or even really as a story from the ancient world. But the more I saw about how ideas of Atlantis has have devolved online, how many dangerous conspiracies abound, and how forcefully these believers will emphasize their misguided beliefs, the more I knew I couldn't do it that way. I had to come at it, honestly, right from the top. The thing is, though, fortunately, Atlantis is fascinating all the same. Plato's story is fascinating. The way it's misinterpreted and misunderstood is fascinating. And the complex lack of any evidence ever at all of either myth or history is doubly fascinating. So I hope I made the right call when it comes to an entertaining and engaging story, but I know I made the right call morally. And not to worry, the future episodes will go much deeper into what it means and why it's important that I told the story in the way that I did. Next week, we'll learn what exactly Plato was doing with the Critias and the story of Atlantis and dive into what evidence exists beyond Plato. We'll talk about the history of the region and what the story tells us about itself. And the week after, we'll cover what I've already mentioned, the ramifications of Atlantis, what it means to look for Atlantis and the danger of some, though not all, of those searches. In the end, though, regardless of why people are looking, it all comes down to the same similar issues. Because, well, like I've said, it turns out it's dark as hell and has implications that you absolutely will not believe. If you're anything like I was, you just grew up with it in pop culture and thought it sounded cool. And sure, It does, but it's become something else. Atlantis often represents something incredibly dark within humanity when it isn't just perpetuating pseudo-archaeology and the danger of going looking for something you're already convinced exists. But hey, I won't try to explain all that to you now. That's literally why I spoke with these incredible archaeologists, because they know this better than I do. I just wanted you all to understand why I've handled it the way that I have. So stay tuned. There's so much more to come when it comes to Atlantis. It may not be a myth, but it is a wild ride all the same. But hey, I won't try to explain all this to you now. That's why I spoke with these incredible archaeologists, because they know this much better than I do. So stay tuned. There's so much more to come when it comes to Atlantis. It may not be a myth, but it is a wild ride all the same. 
Special thanks to listener Jade, who helped me with Atlantis research all the way back in January of 2021, before I realized just how much more I could put into this series and therefore set about procrastinating and putting it off for a full year. And to the incredible Sarah Richard, illustrator extraordinaire. You'll know Sarah's work from our book, Greek Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook, and from our upcoming book, Nectar of the Gods, which includes the illustration that led me to ask Sarah to illustrate the incredible images used for this series and the promotion of it. Facepalm Play-Doh might be my favorite thing ever. Thank you, Sarah and Jade. And thank you to all you listeners. You're the best. I am Liv, and I love actual mythology. Now different gods had their allotments in different places which they set in order. Hephaestus and Athena, who were brother and sister and sprang from the same father, having a common nature and being united also in the love of philosophy and art, both obtained as their common portion this land, which was naturally adapted for wisdom and virtue, and there they implanted brave children of the soil and put into their minds the order of government." Their names are preserved, but their actions have disappeared by reason of the destruction of those who received the tradition, and the lapse of ages. For when there were any survivors, as I have already said, they were men who dwelt in the mountains, and they were ignorant of the art of writing, and had heard only the names of the chiefs of the land, but very little about their actions. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Back again in this special series of episodes to talk about the concept that is, quite importantly and quite specifically, not a myth, and not really a story either, and definitely not history, Atlantis. And yet it is a fascinating thing, not necessarily for the story itself or its general point, but for everything surrounding it everything it has become, and all the ways it is completely misunderstood. And that is not to suggest that I am some special person for knowing the truth. Far from it. Like I said last week, like most of you, I was led to believe that Atlantis was, at least in part, a myth. We all thought it was a myth, right? Or a story meant to be believed, or maybe even something the ancient Greeks believed to be historical, like some of those otter moments in Herodotus. Growing up in the 20th and 21st centuries, everything in pop culture and beyond suggests that Atlantis is, at the very least, a Greek myth, or maybe even more. Maybe you grew up believing it really is a story of a lost city, or even just could possibly be a lost city. All because, well, we think it's a myth, and maybe, like Troy, it was a myth based in some vague sense of reality, right? Alas, that is simply not the case with Plato's Atlantis. It is not a myth, and today's episode is devoted to that, or rather, a deeper understanding of what Plato was trying to do and why that means it is not a myth, nor history, nor ever believed to be history, even by Plato. 
And frankly, all of that is totally enthralling in itself. Trust me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get into the why of it all, why did Plato write this story of Atlantis, let's recap last week, because this idea of Atlantis, or rather the notion as it appears in both the Timaeus and the Critias dialogues, is incredibly complex, and I threw a hell of a lot of information at you in last week's episode. Fascinating, weird, and bizarre information? Absolutely. But there was a lot of it all the same, so let's recap. The story of Atlantis appears exclusively in Plato's dialogues. The Timaeus briefly, and the Critias primarily. The majority of the Timaeus is used to speak of the origins of humanity and various existential-style philosophical musings, with a brief teaser of introduction of Atlantis. But the teaser is important because it conveys some of the information that's lost or unfinished in the Critias. It's in the Timaeus that we learn that Atlantis and Athens went to war, and that Athens prevailed, and that in the end, the Atlanteans were punished by the gods who sent an earthquake, sending the island of Atlantis and the warriors of Athens into the depths of the sea, apparently in a spot that became so thick with mud that it was then made impassable. The Critias, meanwhile, contains the details, the description of this ancient Athens that existed at the same time, and all the details of the island of Atlantis. Between the two dialogues, this is all there is from the ancient world when it comes to Atlantis. Critias tells us of this island kingdom from 9,000 years before Plato's time, an enormous island, bigger than Asia and North Africa combined, that sat just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, the Strait of Gibraltar, and ruled a region next to Athens, southern Europe up to Italy, and North Africa up to Egypt. Plato, through Critias, prioritizes talking about a prehistoric Athens first, the version of which, he says, existed 9,000 years before Plato's time, yet coincidentally resembles a Platonic ideal of classical Athens. This Athens had everything it could possibly need. Its people were perfect and amazing and brilliant, we're told, and the city ruled itself via the people rather than by kings. It is, in essence, an examination of Plato's theory of an ideal society. They pointedly do not have kings or rulers of any kind, whereas Atlantis had ten kings. This is directly related to the time period Plato lived in and what came before him, where kings and kingdoms were looked down upon in favor of what will be a short-lived democracy in Athens. That is an oversimplification, but basically they did not like kings. Ask any Greek tragedy. Plato, meanwhile, in the Republic, did a lot of theorizing about so-called philosopher kings, but these aren't present in his somewhat revised ideal society in the Critias. He seems to have decided that kings, generally, are a no-go. They're linked to tyrants because, well, that's where the word came from as Athens went through a period of tyrannical kings. The word tyrannos is one of the ancient Greek words for king. This platonic Athens is praised for its perfection, essentially, and also its size. There are 20,000 people and they keep it that way, which is where the touch of eugenics comes in. A perfect man, Plato was not. Meanwhile, Plato, through Critias, moved on to Atlantis with some epic mythological backstory that Critias tells of, but it isn't really relevant. The key bits are that Poseidon is much more involved than Athena and Hephaestus were with Athens, and ultimately Atlantis has ten kings with Poseidon's own blood, who start out good and virtuous, though they have absolute power, before they eventually intermix too much with humanity and descend into hubris and impiety. Atlantis made the gods angry, 
and Athens did not. So when they went to war, Atlantis was defeated by Athens, and Atlantis was lost to the sea, to a muddy mess in the sea, impassable from that point on. But sadly, the details of that last bit are lost. Fortunately, though, there's enough preamble to the conflict in both dialogues that we know they went to war. Even though Athens had a much smaller population, they won. And the gods punished Atlantis for its hubris and tyranny by sending an earthquake that sent the city plunging into the sea. And, we're told, all of this was later learned by Egyptian priests who told the Athenian Solon, who told Critias's grandfather, who told Critias, who then told it during this discussion with Timaeus, Socrates, and some guy named Hermocrates. Which was all an invention by Plato. Whew, yep, wild ride indeed. This is episode 151, Deconstructing Atlantis. What makes a myth? Plato's Allegorical Atlantis. Atlantis was not a myth, nor was it history, nor was it anything beyond a notion invented by Plato to prove a philosophical theory. I'm getting that out of the way early and repetitively, because like I said last week, as much as I would love to entertain the idea with you all, unfortunately, it's gone too far past the realm of a fun idea to entertain. Today's episode is all about the fascinating ways in which we know it isn't a myth, or history, because frankly, I find those things fascinating enough, and I know you will too. It's interesting, the evidence we have, or rather lack, in contrast with the generally accepted beliefs of those whose only frame of reference is the modern idea of Atlantis, both both from pop culture and beyond. I count myself among that group, at least before January of last year when I started digging. What I'm going to share with you all today won't convince any of the conspiracy theorists who want to believe in Atlantis. This series isn't for them. You can all stay away. It's for people like me, who just didn't know. When I found out that everything I thought I knew about Atlantis was nonsense and that the only real ancient source was Plato, my mind was sufficiently blown, and now I want to share it with you. So first things first, between today's opening and last week's episode, I've said quite often that Plato's story of Atlantis as it exists in the Critias is not a myth. But why is it not a myth? It may not have the same language style as the myths we're used to, but it talks about Athena and Hephaestus and Poseidon and a mystical world of old, so why does that alone not make it a myth? This is a good and important question, because there is a distinction here. A myth is defined as a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events. The key word there is traditional, and that is precisely where Plato's story of Atlantis fails the test of whether or not it is a myth. It fits the other characteristics. It is purporting to explain a natural phenomenon. It is purporting to tell the story of the history of the Athenian people, and it is purporting to involve supernatural beings, the gods themselves. But it is not traditional. It's the difference between a Marvel movie and Homer's Odyssey. They've got similar characteristics, but only one is a myth. 
Myths of ancient Greece are stories that began as an oral tradition, songs sung of by traveling bards traversing the Greek world. The stories were told all around, changing and evolving and being adjusted for audience before they were finally written down into versions that survive today. This happened over many hundreds of years. That's why we have variations and chronological messes. We have stories of the same heroes from different regions or varying tales of origins. That's why so often I'm talking to you all about different variations, different sources, and what those sources do and do not say about certain characters. It's why we have the Iliad, but we don't have many of the stories that surrounded it, because they're from different time periods and some survived while others didn't. That myths are traditional stories used to explain people, natural histories, and beyond is exactly why I love mythology as much as I do, and why you all enjoy listening to my retellings of mythology. The myths of ancient Greece weave themselves together over a mythological time period, though not a perfect one as we all well know. Heracles, though, comes before the Trojan War. We know that stories of him existed before it because in the Iliad itself he is referenced as having existed in the past. The Homera came to Aphrodite tells of how she gave birth to Aeneas, the prince of Troy. It doesn't matter which of these was written first, just that these two distinct sources talk to each other. The story of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, and their children spans both the Iliad, the Odyssey, and all three of the tragedians. Everyone talked about it. Details like these are both what makes these stories traditional myths of ancient Greece and what makes Atlantis simply not. It doesn't talk to any other myths. It isn't weaving in any characters beyond the gods. It isn't referencing anything that happened or would happen in myths that we know of. And in no traditional myths is it, or anything like it, ever mentioned. There are no mentions of Atlantis before Plato, not in Greece or Egypt. If one is meant to believe that these Egyptian priests who spoke to Solon knew the story of Atlantis, why would there be zero reference to it in Egypt? And why did Solon never tell anyone? If he wrote it down, as Plato says in his dialogue, why did no one read it and mention it to someone anywhere? Personally, if I'd spoken with some Egyptian priests who had a story not only of a lost island, but more importantly, a story of my city, Athens, so great and powerful and virtuous 9,000 years ago, I would tell someone. I would write it down. There would be some surviving evidence either in original sources or someone mentioning the thing they heard. Think of it like the epic cycle. We know there were works devoted to the story before the Iliad and after. We know there was the Cypria and the Little Iliad, and beyond that we know there was an epic cycle devoted to Thebes. We don't know this because of the works themselves. We know this because people quoted those works later and they cited their sources, so we know their sources existed. Were Atlantis ever meant to be a true story, at least one other reference beyond a fictional allegory invented by Plato would exist. Or if not that, then a single reference would be found in visual representation. Like, say, the pottery we have that shows Ajax and Achilles playing a game of dice while Athena watches over. There are multiple examples of this in pottery, but not in any surviving text. Or, alternatively, we have the Amazonomachy itself. The war with the Amazons was absolutely a Greek myth, though we have little to no surviving text sources for it from the Greek world. We know it was an important myth because it was depicted. 
everywhere. (laughs) On pottery and wall paintings and even on the Parthenon itself. Yet no full detailed text source telling the story exists from that time. Were Atlantis meant to be believed to be history or even myth, there would be visual representations of it. That's true simply because there would be a reference to such a notable myth, were it a myth. But even more so because Athens was so, so high on themselves, they would have absolutely taken the opportunity to show off an advanced Athens from 9,000 years before. They would have leapt at the chance, word a myth or believed to be myth or history, to scream from the rooftops that they were an incredible city long, long, long before even the story of the Iliad. Honestly, they would have put it everywhere. (laughs) They would not have been able to shut up about it. Theseus is the perfect example of Athens' pride. He's an awful guy, but they still raised him up like a god because he was their hero. Athens loved to look good. You can see it in countless Greek plays, and the fact that much of what we know about daily life in ancient Greece is because Athens kept records. We know what went down in Athens. You should see the things they put on pottery. Drinking games and sex parties and people just chilling out, living their lives. If nothing from the story of Atlantis made the cut, it really says something. That's what makes it so different from myths, this story of Atlantis, but also quite specifically what makes it different from a place like Troy, where we not only have the Iliad and the Odyssey and fragments of other epics, but we have endless visual representation. And yet still, Atlantis is often compared to Troy. Let's talk about Troy. Troy is often used as a comparison for why maybe Atlantis is something to be found. We found Troy, so why not? There's a few issues at hand here. First, there is what I've just gone over, that the stories around Troy are myths, whereas Atlantis is not, for all of those reasons I laid out. Still, I understand the desire to draw a line between them. They're both these epic-sounding ancient places destroyed by war or natural disaster, or both, lost to a mythical kind of history. Troy's mythology takes place in the Bronze Age, when we know that there were many great civilizations in the Mediterranean, including on that eastern coast of Turkey where a mythical Troy would have been. There were people in those regions, they had cities and palaces and infrastructures. We know they were traveling the Mediterranean, trading and socializing with others in the region. We know all of that for a fact. We have loads of evidence, textual, anthropological, archaeological. We have written records. We have the palaces. We have graves. We have art. So just in that sense alone, the idea of Troy is completely different. It's like what Flint was saying on our conversation episode. Working from the known, all the archaeological evidence for the Bronze Age Mediterranean, and finding the unknown through that. But the easiest answer for why we have none of that for Atlantis is exactly what all the theorists say. Well, if Atlantis was lost, then we wouldn't have it unless we found Atlantis, would we? Well, sure, except for one glaring issue. If we're believing Plato about Atlantis, we have to believe Plato about Athens, too. And we do indeed have Athens. I've been there. (laughs) 
again, as Flint went into in our conversation episode from Friday, we know what was in Athens 9,000 years before Plato, and it was basically nothing. And even if we adjust the date, as some theorists like to do, and make it much more recent, maybe 4,000 years before Plato, there's still nothing resembling the Athens of Plato's story. Even the Bronze Age, another few thousand years later, we have Athens, and there's a settlement there, maybe a palace even, but still the archaeology doesn't check out. Nothing fits, because it isn't supposed to fit. Plato made it up. Learning that there was a prehistoric ancient Athens at war with Atlantis in the story, the original story, is one of the things that really did it for me. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard that before, that everyone who talks about Atlantis as myth or reality just casually forgets that there's this glaringly obvious reason why history cannot fit the narrative. But then, that's what makes so much of the belief in Atlantis a conspiracy theory. It's where the pseudo-archaeology comes in. They're trying to prove the point they've already decided exists, so it's easiest to ignore what doesn't fit your narrative, to pretend it's not there at all. And just to cap it off, yes, Troy has been found, or what we have determined can be called Troy, but that doesn't mean there was a Trojan War. We haven't found any evidence of proof of the war, just like we haven't found any evidence of an actual labyrinth on Crete, even though we have the palace at Knossos. And yet again, those are still myths, whereas Atlantis is, quite unfortunately, not. Atlantis, as this prehistoric lost world, only appears in Plato, and only in the Timaeus and the Critias. There are no stories or myths or history that interact with it. There are, simply, no other real references to Atlantis as a historical or mythical location, at all, from anywhere or any time period in the ancient world. There's nothing. So, if it's not a myth and it's not history, which we'll get into more later, then what is it? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Atlantis isn't a myth or history. Atlantis is an allegory. Atlantis is an allegory, a thought experiment, and a philosophical one at that. An allegory is defined as a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. That's what Atlantis is. Of course, one of the first pieces of evidence that Atlantis isn't a myth or history should be the fact that it was written by Plato, a philosopher who didn't write myths or history, but unfortunately, that's often ignored, or people say that Plato, in this case, was writing about a historical story. But why would he do that, if that wasn't something he did? Why would this be the one real story amongst a host of philosophical writings that use fictional allegories as their plot devices? Plato used allegory and narrative storytelling through the voices of real, often long-dead, people in his dialogues, often as a way to make his philosophical points. It served as a way to explore theories and ideas within the context of a story he'd created. That's why the story of Atlantis isn't focused on any kind of heroic adventure, any slaying of mythical monsters, or even, say, the wrath of a hero like Achilles. It is concerned only with these two ancient civilizations who each serve as examples of opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to rulership and what happens from that rule. It's an examination on what is the ideal way of leading societies and what are the harms of the alternative. What we've lost is likely a more detailed examination on how those ideas behaved during wartime, but what we have is enough to show that it was simply an allegory examining those theories on how best to run a city. In the story, Athens is the ideal society, not Atlantis, as much as it's depicted as a kind of perfect utopia now. It was literally invented to be the bad guy. Isn't that wild? 
This version of prehistoric Athens is not meant to be taken as a real story, a myth, or history. It is Plato examining what he considers to be the most important in a so-called ideal society. People each serving a specific role, these roles working in tandem, the society ruling itself without a king, and adhering to a set and specific number of citizens at any given time, whose blood remains pure. Of course, that's where we get into the inklings of one of Plato's major flaws. An interest in eugenics. The point is this Athens is Plato's ideal, and it serves as a direct contrast to his invented Athens, an ancient society that began wonderfully, began by the gods, was exceedingly wealthy, controlled their own people with an iron fist, (laughs) ruled by kings. But because the kings have this absolute power, they can be corrupted. Some of the last lines of the Critias describing Atlantis are, quote, By such reflections and by the continuance in them of a divine nature, the qualities which we have described grew and increased among them. But when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture and the human nature got the upper hand, they then, being unable to bear their fortune, behaved unseemly, And to him who had an eye to see grew visibly debased, for they were losing the fairest of their precious gifts. But to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they appeared glorious and blessed at the very time when they were full of avarice and unrighteous power. The bit we're really looking at here is when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture. The idea is that the divine nature that Poseidon had given them, as the original godly father of these people, became too mixed with standard humanity, and thus they became tainted. The kings descended into tyranny. Meanwhile, because Athens had kept their population tightly controlled... They didn't. Ugh. Plato's interest in eugenics isn't the point, but it is telling, given where the serious belief in Atlantis has gone over the past hundred years or so. Somehow, Plato's example of a tyrannical society whose blood became impure when it mixed with mere mortals has become the ideal utopian society for people who believe in pure bloodlines. It's as contradictory as it is dark and disturbing. Now, the bits of the Critias dialogue that are lost, what would have come after this note about impurities, would have described the war with Athens. We know this happened in Plato's story because it's mentioned in the teaser in the Timaeus. The destruction of the island followed, and the Athenian warrior class went with it, caused by the gods through a major earthquake and flood. But what we know first is that Athens won this epic war, even though they had considerably fewer warriors and citizens. That, too, is the allegory at play. Atlantis had a way, way bigger military force, but the ideal Athenian society defeated them all the same because of everything they'd done to make themselves ideal. That is the point Plato is trying to make. Much like his other dialogues, his philosophical writings in general, Plato invented a story to make this point. It's just that, somehow, this one story gets promoted or understood to be real and historical, whereas all of the other ones get a pass as fictions. In fact, 
Plato's habit of playing around with his storytelling goes beyond just the use of allegory. In the Timaeus and the Critias, he often forms his points in a way where you get the idea that he's having a laugh with it all, that he's presenting an idea that is, on its face, unbelievable, and that's kind of the point. It's almost comedically untrue, and that was Plato's intention. That the story of Atlantis as it's presented in Plato's Critias is entertaining and almost comedic in its telling is pretty evident when you read it, provided you're coming at it from a historical mindset. Translation helps, too, because the old one I read in detail just now and last week is dry enough that you can miss what's behind Plato's words. Because I was reading so much of it, I had to go with that public domain translation. But in reading through a more recent translation, only from the last 10 years or so, by Stephen P. Kershaw, you can get a better sense of Plato's intent. The book is in the episode's description, and it's pretty good all around. Plato's use of wordplay overall contributes to how he intended his allegory to make his point. You know, in The Republic, he even talks about making up stories and presenting them as history in order to help the audience believe your point. Like he gave the game away. So if you're Plato and you want to tell this story in a way that's going to be accessible to your audience without it being so recent as to be distracting in its contradiction to known history, you're going to invent a world that is so far back in time that no one will question why there's no sign of it now, where the only records exist in the mysterious region to the south, Egypt, a place even the Greeks were intrigued by, since their history went so much further back in time than the Greek where there were pyramids that had been around for as long as any Greek had been visiting. Who better to hold the key to this story? You'll position your story so that it's coming, if third-hand, through the voice of a man like Solon, who was considered one of the wisest sages of Athens during his time, and who had traveled to Egypt. Come up with a connection between your main character— Critias, and the character originally telling the story, Solon, that is both far enough in the past that you have a reason for why none of it can now be verified, while still being legitimate, like the wise Athenian statesmen of the past. Keep with the light-hearted intro. Tell your audience that the reason all this knowledge and history was lost, even though Athens remained, is that... Ugh, geez, what an unfortunate coincidence. The only people that survived all this time were illiterate people in the mountains. What do you know? They literally couldn't write it down. Ha ha, your audience will laugh. A convenient reason for a lack of record. This Plato is very clever, they'll think. Now, onto the ancient island being invented. You're telling the story of how hubris with a dash of impure blood caused the downfall of this ancient society, so you need a protagonist and an antagonist. Both you as the creator and your storyteller are famous Athenians, so obviously Athens is going to be your protagonist. Athens is the best, after all. So first you're going to lay out the good guys, the Athenians, and what makes them so ideal. 
You want to remind your audience that this is the Athens they know now, but so long ago they can suspend their disbelief that it is run so differently from the current Athens. Still, you want to drill home the Athens of it all, so you're going to mention the Acropolis Hill and the Temple of Athena. Really harp on this utopian Athens. You love your city so much, why not imagine it into a big, beautiful past? Tell everyone how perfect the system was, how great the people were. Make sure you mention Athena. Everyone loves Athena. Tell everyone how fertile the land was and how much more space they had back then for agriculture. But wait, don't just say that. You need to explain why the landmass has changed. Toss in some good geological science, erosion and the like. Make sure you sound super smart. You're a serious philosopher after all. Moving on, before you lay out the bad guys, you want to toss in a kind of nudge-nudge-wink-wink to your audience. Explain why all the names your audience is about to hear are names they'll recognize. Tell them that, yeah, it might seem unbelievable, sure, that all these names are Greek, but that doesn't make your story false. Nope, you've got an explanation. It's because these names have been translated. Twice. Your audience will have a little chuckle at this. Ha ha, how convenient. This will also help your audience accept that the story revolves around your own deities, a point that also helps ground it. Athena has Athens now, so it checks out that she'd have it back then, too. Once your audience has sufficiently appreciated your clever joke, you want to lay out the bad guys, the ones who are going to start out sounding great. They're children of gods, that makes them different enough from your audience and the history of the region so as to make them an other a group you can then easily demonize later in your story. Barbarians. You're going to want to over-describe the details here. Really paint a picture for your audience so they grow interested in your story and thus your eventual point. You'll draw on the regions you know, the circular settlements that exist all around the Mediterranean. You're going to put these bad guys in the location that is both accessible and not just beyond where ships sail, just beyond the bit that's impassable for its rough waters. If you put it there, it's close without being too close. It's at the edge of your known world. And toss in a reason for why the waters are impassable. It's because of what's about to happen to your island. You're going to want to make the story itself appealing and lay down the groundwork for what will be your island's downfall. So you're going to want to make them very, very rich. They're going to have loads of metals that Greece doesn't have. They're going to put it everywhere as though they're swimming in it. But still, they're humble. That's right. They're rich as anything, but they're so humble because at the beginning, they're godly and they're good. They're a virtuous people, those islanders. Now you want to transition to your philosophical point. The more power the kings have, the less honorable they are, the more tyrannical they become. Their extreme wealth is going to become an issue. Who saw that coming? Not the Atlanteans, but definitely your audience. They're going to become too proud, too tainted by hubris and mortality. As your audience very, very well knows, with that much power comes tyranny. Kings become tyrannical. Like I just did, Plato had a lot of fun writing this dialogue. He got to use his imagination just enough to invent this world to serve his point, while still grounding it very much in the world that he and his audience understood, that of classical Athens. 
Honestly, everything about Atlantis sounds like it was invented in classical Athens, even if you ignore it being by Plato. At least the Iliad and the Odyssey feel as though they're much older, even if they were only written down in the Archaic period. But Atlantis? Nah, it sounds like an imaginative and often tongue-in-cheek interpretation that's grounded in the reality of Plato's world. To cap it all off, at the very beginning of the Critias, before the story is being told, Plato basically pats himself on the back by having Critias talk about how it's easy to tell stories of the gods, but much more difficult to speak to stories of mere humans, which, of course, is what he's about to do. Still, even with all these details, you don't have to take my word for it that Plato clearly invented the idea of Atlantis. You might still be thinking, Plato could still be making the same point, and even still be tongue-in-cheek in his use of the story while referring to a real historical story of Atlantis, couldn't he? We'll dive into the historical evidence, or lack thereof, next week, including the time there was an incredibly destructive natural disaster that absolutely changed the face of the Mediterranean long long before Plato's time, and why that still wasn't Atlantis. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. I'm having a lot of fun with this. Kind of feels like I'm attacking everyone, but I feel like all of you are on my side. Anyway, I still think it's so fascinating. Thank you so much for listening. I know it's a lot just hearing in detail how something you probably thought you knew is actually something else entirely. It's it's a lot of just me debunking, for lack of a better word. But I personally find that part of it, how obvious it all is once you realize, to be the most interesting. We've all been so taken over by notions about Atlantis that were invented only in the last few hundred years that we have no idea what the truth of the story is, what actually existed in the ancient world. It's wild! On Friday, I speak with an archaeologist who looks at pseudo-archaeology. It's an utterly fascinating conversation and dives deeper into the dangers of pseudo-archaeology and how Atlantis got to be the way that it is. It is quite the story, honestly. Now, you might notice there aren't a ton of sources listed in the episode's description. Normally, I wouldn't feel the need to address this, but I know I'm going to get a lot of eager Atlantis hunters and deep believers who, if they made it this far, they probably didn't, I guess, are going to maybe want to hear. I don't know if anyone's immediately annoyed at me for coming at the story in this way, for not entertaining any notion of it being anything other than an allegorical story invented by Plato, but I know it's the right way to do it. But I want to clarify, I'm here to tell you the ancient source for Atlantis, to tell you about where the idea came from and why, and to examine what it means and what it does and does not mean for the wider ancient Mediterranean world. And there's only so much I can do in a podcast, so I would also encourage you to read up on the good, real, historical sources that talk about this. Basically, for the most part, I'm staying in the ancient world when talking about the story of Atlantis. That's why I've referred to the primary source, Plato's Timaeus and Critias, as well as a book I found very helpful and would recommend if you want to learn more, A Brief History of Atlantis, Plato's Ideal State by Stephen P. Kershaw. From what I found in my research, it comes at Atlantis from a historical and archaeological perspective and provides loads of helpful history and context. Highly recommend. There's so much in there, I've just scratched the surface. Just a taste of what Atlantis is and is not. 
I don't want to talk about the modern searches or theories for a lot of reasons. The simplest is that all of them are based on the idea that Plato is speaking truth. But when I read it and when I read commentary on it, it's so incredibly obvious to me that he was not even purporting to be telling a real story. It feels disingenuous to even entertain the idea that he was. The most obvious reason I don't want to entertain those theories is that every bit of real archaeology we have, and every bit of textual evidence from the ancient world, and every rational interpretation of the facts, makes clear that Plato invented the story, and thus there is no rational basis for looking at anything, ever. But the most important reason I don't want to talk about those modern theories is that while some of the old theories from the 19th and even the 20th century might seem fun and quirky, Disney's Atlantis style, the concept itself has become problematic as hell. I've spoken of that, and I will in more detail next week. We're not going to cover the theories, they don't matter, but we will talk about why the search for Atlantis is problematic, why pseudo-archaeology is dangerous, and how it all comes down to some really dark and awful racism. It's all very interesting and mysterious, but if we entertain the conspiracy theories, we detract from real and important historical and archaeological study. We detract from the ancient civilizations that actually existed in the Mediterranean and all that they did. We give voice to a theory that is often used by racist conspiracists to promote white supremacy. Something, again, I will be talking about more. For all these reasons, I'm coming at the story from the ancient truth of it. Plato was a philosopher who used fiction to philosophize. It's really interesting and cool to think about, but it's not real. Thank you all for listening. You are all the best. I'm Liv and I love myths. The ones that interact with one another, that span centuries of oral storytelling. The real ones. Many great and wonderful deeds are recorded of your state in our histories, but one of them exceeds all the rest in greatness and valor. For these histories tell of a mighty power which unprovoked made of a mighty power which unprovoked made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together, and was the way to other islands from these you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent which surrounded the true ocean. For this sea which is within the Straits of Heracles is only a harbour, having a narrow entrance, but that other is a real sea, and the surrounding land may be most truly called a boundless continent. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Once more here to remind you that, at least for this series of episodes, the show is much better called Let's Talk About Allegory, baby. <laughs> Not a good song. 
Play-Doh, Play-Doh, Play-Doh. What have you done? I'll never get over the fact that all of the invented fantastical nonsense we know about Atlantis ultimately comes from this odd little pair of dialogues by Play-Doh. Have you noticed yet how minimally advanced they are technologically? They're no more advanced than the classical world of Play-Doh. They've got nothing to suggest they were in any way, say, the way they're depicted in the Disney movie, which, yes, is basically my only pop culture reference for Atlantis other than Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Which, I mean, there's too much Assassin's Creed Isu stuff going on in there for me to really try to navigate it. Except for a bonus episode on Saturday. Yes, I'm speaking with the wonderful Dr. Kira Jones again. All about the Atlantis DLC. You'll remember Kira from another Odyssey episode we did a while back. But today is not about AC Odyssey nor Disney. Today we're continuing on a bit from last week's episode, moving on to the history of it all before taking a left turn and examining just why some of the modern notions of Atlantis are dangerous. As I've said before, I'm not going into modern theories, I don't think they deserve airtime, and they're all based in misreading Plato in one way or another. You simply can't develop a reasoned argument for Atlantis existing if you read Plato honestly as I hope I've made pretty clear over the last few episodes, while simultaneously not being too repetitive, have I been too repetitive? (laughs) I also want to say that, once more, there isn't anything wrong with being interested in Atlantis. I just want you all to know the background, the ancient sources as they exist, and I want you to understand the ways in which an interest in Atlantis can end up transformed into a dark and dangerous conspiracy that typically has roots in even darker and more dangerous racism. That is today's episode, and on Friday I'll be speaking with Steph Halmhofer, an archaeologist who studies the conspiracy of it all, and the conspirituality. Yes, conspirituality! More on that later. Still, looking for Atlantis is another thing entirely. Last week, we talked about Atlantis through the mouth of Plato, what he was trying to do, and how he went about accomplishing it. We talked about allegory and how Plato uses allegory to make his points, how he intentionally made Atlantis unbelievable so that his audience might suspend their disbelief, be able to separate themselves from the modern implications of Plato's theory, and think of it as though it was taking place in another world. We talked about why, exactly, Atlantis is not a myth, why and how it doesn't fit the definition, not nor the general understanding of the word, why it's very different from a place like Troy. By now you might be wondering where the rest of our notions of Atlantis really come from, if they don't come from Plato or Greek mythology. We often think of Atlantis as being highly technologically advanced people, or being wise and spiritual. You might even have an idea that the reason they were punished by the gods was actually because of these things, because they flew too close to the sun, to use a very apt mythological phrase borrowed from our friend Icarus. There are so many common and accepted notions of Atlantis that I haven't mentioned in the series that weren't included when I broke down Plato's story because they're not in Plato's story. So where did they come from? We'll get there. But first, how and why we know that, as much as it would be fascinating and very, very cool if there were indeed a lost city of Atlantis just waiting to be found, every bit of physical, historical, and archaeological evidence we have tells us differently. 
what those things can tell us about the ancient Mediterranean and Plato's Atlantis. This is episode 152, Deconstructing Atlantis, Platonic Allegory Meets Bronze Age Reality Meets Dangerous Conspiracy. At the very end of last week's episode, I offered an idea of what many of you might be thinking, that... Surely, allegory and non-myth status aside, it isn't impossible that Plato was talking about a real place. Surely it could be just one big coincidence that he is the only source to mention it independently, that no one before him had any notion of the lost island, and that every mention after him was in relation to his own invention. That surely it's not impossible, even based on that evidence. Honestly, it might also be that this hasn't crossed any of your minds. I don't have a good grasp on how regular old humans, non-conspiracy theorists, I mean, imagine Atlantis. Myth? Fiction? I used to always just assume it was myth. I don't know if I ever thought it was history. I think we all understand it incorrectly, but just how incorrectly is another question. Still, we're going to visit this idea because it's interesting and it gives me a reason to talk about the ancient Mediterranean region and the archaeological and historical evidence that we do have. I've already mentioned one of the pieces of evidence, or I suppose lack thereof, that I consider to be one of the most convincing, but let's dive into what it actually means that Plato in the 4th century BCE is the one and only source to mention, really mention, Atlantis. But first, every time I say something like this, I can hear the believers screaming a few names at me. And frankly, I thought I'd explained this in last week's episode, but my scripts for these have become so unwieldy that it got moved to today's. Plato is absolutely the first reference to Atlantis, but there are a handful of others that come after him. Plutarch is one, and a couple of other philosophers. Still, all of these references to Atlantis are explicitly connected with Plato's story. Plutarch entertains the idea in his life of Solon, but he's writing many more hundreds of years after Plato, who was a couple hundred years after Solon, so Plutarch is simply picking up on Plato's usage of him as a character. Similar with those philosophers who mention it, though they are either students of Plato, admirers of his work, or people disputing him, in all cases, references to Atlantis are just speaking of Plato's story. Aristotle himself was a student of Plato, and he seems not to have believed the story of Atlantis, or to have known it was obviously meant to be false, as he had many chances to speak of it as anything other than a thought experiment, and he did not. But, to put it simply, there are no other independent sources for Atlantis. That is, no other sources that aren't building off of Plato's pre-existing invention. To put it simply, if I were to write that the sky is green, and many hundreds of years down the line someone writes that Liv wrote that the sky was green, and she was a smart lady, so who knows? That does not mean the sky was ever green. When it comes to the archaeological evidence against Atlantis, let's get the most obvious out of the way. 
As I've already mentioned, the date of 9,000 years before Plato, or Solon, doesn't even matter. Either way, that date is easily disprovable because, well, if we want to disprove Atlantis, we simply have to look to Athens, where there was nothing remotely resembling a city capable of waging war and winning against an island like Atlantis. Anyone who's trying to find Atlantis or convince others that it might have been historical when it comes to Plato's Timaeus and Critias, but that ignores the lack of city of in Athens from that time period is immediately unreliable. They're doing exactly the definition of pseudo-archaeology. They're ignoring the methodology, the existing facts, in order to prove their pre-existing idea. Still, let's dive deeper. Let's say we want to believe that Plato based his story in history, but invented this contemporary ancient Athens. It's a stretch, sure. But all of this is a stretch, so we're playing with it. Atlantis, we're told, was an island bigger than Asia and Libya, that is, northern Africa, put together, but it sank, into the Atlantic, just beyond the Pillars of Heracles. It seems easy to be like, hey, we know what's at the bottom of the Atlantic, just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, the Strait of Gibraltar, and there's nothing. So dust your hands in that satisfying kind of way and head home. But... No. Despite the fact it's very clear where Atlantis was meant to be, the search for it has gone far, far beyond Plato and into an entirely invented realm where people suggest it's all over the damn place. It's up north with the Scandinavians, it's off in the Indian Ocean, it's somewhere in the Pacific, it's the whole of the Americas. All of that is straight up ignoring the singular classical source whose story had a really simple grasp on the Mediterranean geography and absolutely intended the island to be just on the other side of that strait, close enough that it could rule over Europe and Africa. That's part of the story, too. Frankly, I'll never fathom how anyone who considers themselves an archaeologist gets convinced, but hey, it's happened. And well, that's about as far as I'm willing to entertain the idea of Atlantis being somewhere beyond the clear facts shared by Plato, because those theories are all disingenuous nonsense. They've got their roots in the Atlantis of a much, much later time. A much more dangerous notion of Atlantis, which we'll get to. But there's one theory of Atlantis that has a lot more merit and has gained a lot of cultural importance in Greece itself. It stands on its own as a theory beyond these nonsensical ideas of where Atlantis could be or the idea that Plato was suddenly a historian. That is the only theory I'm interested in talking about because it is in itself a fascinating piece of history. This theory of Atlantis isn't necessarily that the island in question was Atlantis. It doesn't visibly resemble Plato's description, it is very, very small comparatively, and, well, Plato's allegory was explicitly fictional. Still, that doesn't mean he didn't have some inspiration, that there wasn't a real event that gave him an idea for his then-fictional philosophical world. Of course, that island is now what we call Santorini, but it used to be a very, very different place. Now, like I said, the Greek people, and particularly modern Santorini, have developed their own story of Atlantis that includes Santorini. Modern Greece has taken hold of that idea, and I am not here to tell the Greek people how to use their own history, their own cultural stories, be they philosophical allegories or otherwise. So, first and foremost, 
zero judgment to the Greek people or the island of Santorini for using the story in Atlantis in whatever way that they want to. You do you. Thanks for all that you do. Just be in Greek. Echaristopoli. Time to talk about why Santorini still isn't anything that can be reasonably called Atlantis. But oh, is it something else entirely? The ancient island of Thera, now what we call Santorini, was a volcanic island north of Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was an island that was a mountain, in which was hidden a volcano. There, in the Bronze Age, was a city that was connected with the Minoan people of Crete. We call it Akrotiri, and Akrotiri was incredible. They had stunning, colorful, and detailed wall paintings of flowers, of people boxing, of women gathering saffron flowers... The paintings very much resemble those on the island of Crete, hence the connection between the two islands. (sighs) Now, remember, this was the Bronze Age. The city was occupied earlier than the 17th or 16th centuries BCE. Now, of course, that isn't remotely near the realm of Atlantis at the 10th or 11th millennia BCE, but it is well over a thousand years older than Plato. So what happened in the 16th or 17th centuries BCE? Why is it possibly the inspiration for the fictional island of Atlantis? And for that matter, why was this ancient island of Thera so very different from the modern island of Santorini? Well, Thera was a volcano, and volcanoes erupt. And Thera's was a really, really, really strong eruption. I wish I knew more about volcanoes so that I could properly explain to you how big it was, but I'll try. The volcanic eruption of Thera was one of the biggest volcanic eruptions we have records for. It was a 6 or a 7 in the order of magnitude that they used to track eruptions. Almost all of the volcanoes that hit an 8 happened before humanity even existed. That's how big an 8 is. So you can get an idea of what a seven might look like. The eruption of Thera changed the face of the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age. It brought about a volcanic winter. It sent tsunamis. It tore through the Mediterranean and disrupted the peoples living there to such a degree that it is often credited for what is termed the Bronze Age Collapse. That in itself is a problematic term, as there wasn't any kind of like official or true collapse, but a slow erosion and breakdown of Bronze Age societies that was, in large part, affected by this volcano. Imagine you're a person living in the 1600s BCE. You're pretty reliant on agriculture and trade. So when a volcanic eruption happens so close and is so big that it basically ruins an entire year of your lives... It it caused a refugee crisis. It just did so many things. An enormous amount of damage, the effects of which would have been felt for centuries. 
The eruption of Thera was so big that the majority of the island, which was itself the volcano, sunk into the sea. It left a caldera, which is today still beneath the sea in Santorini, an island that is now a circular shape, because the whole center of it sunk into the sea. But how do we know about Akrotiri, the city on Thera, where the stunning wall paintings were? It was preserved by the volcanic ash and whatever else. I'm not a volcanologist. Just like Pompeii. Only older. So much older. Like over 1600 years older than Pompeii. Ugh. If you take one thing from this episode other than the fact that Atlantis wasn't a myth or reality, take with you the knowledge that there exists a preserved ancient city that is over 1,600 years older than Pompeii. That its wall paintings were preserved and can still be seen on both Santorini and in Athens. Google Akrotiri. You'll thank me. It's absolutely the best thing I learned in university. So what better inspiration for Plato's fictional city of Atlantis than this volcanic eruption? over a thousand years before his time, the remains of which he could see with his own eyes. It's pretty easy to believe the argument that the island of Thera, Santorini, while not Atlantis, could have been the inspiration for Atlantis. But it was and is so much better than Atlantis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 
2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The example of Thera, Santorini, and why it might be a beautiful story of Plato's inspiration, but certainly can't be reasonably called Atlantis from the story itself at least, connects very nicely to the why of it all. Why have I made this series of episodes all about disproving Atlantis, blowing up your childhood dreams, talking about how it simply isn't a thing, be that thing myth or history or anything else? Because like you've likely heard in my conversation episodes by now, when we attribute something to Atlantis, at least the Atlantis it's become, instead of attributing it to the ancient people who actually did exist and did do some pretty incredible things, we take the credit away from those actual ancient people. Thera Santorini wasn't Atlantis because that suggests that they were this godly people separate from the Minoan Greeks who actually lived on Thera and built Akrotiri and painted those incredible wall paintings and did everything else wonderful that they did in a historical reality. Now, obviously, Santorini is one of the least problematic, least dangerous examples, namely because modern Greece uses Atlantis as a way to bring people to Santorini to teach them about Akrotiri, which is great. But it is a good example as a starting point. First, though, let's look at what Atlantis has become, because that is a vital piece of this. Now, some of what you'll hear will sound familiar from my conversation with David S. Anderson, but I've expanded on it here. This new version of Atlantis began to develop, at least in any kind of mainstream way, in the 16th century. That is, the 16th century CE. You know, only about 2,000 years after Plato lived. This is when Atlantis started being seen as a utopia. Now, as I've said, these episodes aren't about this new version of Atlantis because it's so far from the ancient idea and the ancient sources that I find it just to be too inherently wrong. I mean, I guess these early inklings have value when you're looking at the historical time period that they developed in and the literature that they came from, things like Thomas More's Utopia and Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis. But this isn't a literature podcast, nor is it about this time in history, which is all of way of me saying I haven't read these sources and I'm only giving a broad overview to get to my point. 
The idea of Atlantis as a utopia first appears in these works, Utopia by Thomas More and The New Atlantis by Francis Bacon. Do I know how they got to Atlantis being a utopia or whether there was some kind of semi-reasonable argument to get there? No, because it's not the point. The point is, this is where it starts. Of course, as I've already said, this is not remotely what Plato intended. The Atlantis of Plato is very much not a utopia and in fact intentionally serves as the example of the opposite of the more utopian Athens. And yet suddenly here in the 16th century CE, Atlantis becomes a utopia. And the idea catches on. It's baffling. Plato makes it very clear. Atlantis are the bad guys. Sure, they begin virtuous, but even when they're being virtuous, we hear that they can punish and kill whoever they want for whatever reason they deem fit. Beyond that, they're the ones who descend into tyranny. They're the ones who lose the war with Athens. They're the ones who are punished by the gods. Meanwhile, Athens sounds quite nice if you ignore Plato's interest in eugenics. Whatever the reason and whether it makes sense or not, this is when Atlantis begins to be seen as a utopia. Oh, and does it go downhill from there. Then you shift to the people who are in the midst of violently colonizing the Americas, who start thinking that it's simply impossible for these indigenous peoples to have created such incredible architectural works, pyramids and temples and all the amazing things the colonizers found in the Americas. So those colonizers think, hey, you know what? In fact, all of these incredible feats we've found in the Americas are just proof of Atlantis. Because, no, no, these non-white indigenous peoples couldn't be capable of such ingenuity. It must mean that the Atlanteans did it. Yeah, they must have escaped the island before it sunk into the sea, made their way to the Americas, and built all this amazing stuff. Yep, that must be it. And so, as you can see, this is where the racism starts, and it doesn't stop. Now... All of this next bit will be super simplified because I'm not diving too deep into this. I don't want to read any of these next people's works or learn their racist shit. I'm going off of Wikipedia, which I would otherwise never do. But these are racist ideologies, so I'm not going any deeper than our good friend, Wikipedia. Because we next have Ignatius Donnelly, the American congressman who developed an extensive and beyond absurd book of Atlantis theorizing. It does a lot of things to the story of Atlantis, but the important bit is that it introduces a bit of spiritualism to the story. Needless to say, an American congressman of the 19th century contributed a bunch of Christian ideals to the story. He wrote about Atlantis being the common history between the Americas and Africa. He connects the flood of Atlantis to the biblical flood. And he says that Atlantis was the origin of the Aryan race. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, you can see where we're going here. From there, Helena Blavatsky. We'll talk more about Helena Blavatsky in my upcoming conversation episode with Steph Holmhofer, but the Cliff's Notes is that she introduced a whole other level of invented spiritualism to Atlantis, and a whole lot more race stuff that, gods, I will not try to understand. But, you know, it was the 19th century and she was white, so it's not good. Obviously, all of this is so not good that you know who else looked for Atlantis with real seriousness and a really racist theory? The fucking Nazis. In Germany, around the same time, there develops a theory that the Atlanteans are in fact Hyperboreans. 
Now, Hyperborea is originally from Greek myth, if not many myths, and is basically how they understood Northern Europe. There's very little. Maybe I'll cover it one day. Myths aside, the idea, along with Atlantis, was picked up by Blavatsky. The key only is that this theory later allows the Nazis to believe that the Atlanteans were white. Like blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white. You can imagine Donnelly's theory of the origin of the Aryan race didn't help. And so off the Nazis go trying to find Atlantis to find their so-called proof of an ancient white race, an ancient Aryan race, from which they can say they are descended and thus justify all of the horror they're about to commit. It's bad. I'm obviously truly really not here to talk about the Nazis, thank the gods. But it's important to lay out the ways in which Atlantis has been used for horrific racist propaganda. It doesn't need to be said, but all of this is complete and utter bullshit for a whole host of obvious reasons, but the main one being, if Atlantis were where Plato said it was, beyond the Strait of Gibraltar, they wouldn't have been particularly light-skinned, let alone how we understand white as the Nazis and other racists want to think. But this is how Atlantis came to be such a dangerous topic. It's why I'm coming at it like I am. It's why I've had these incredible archaeologists who want to talk to me about it. It's why it's a big deal that we don't give any credence or viewership to these nonsense so-called documentaries that go searching for Atlantis because it's good for ratings, ignoring the fact that it is inherently not a place, not a history, not a myth, and that it actually has a whole slew of racist undertones that aren't Plato's fault, but they exist all the same. Atlantis has been used as a way to get around the out-of-Africa theory, that if the whitest of the white people actually came from this idea of a white Atlantis, then these racist shits don't have to believe that they, along with all the rest of us, are descended from people who originally came from Africa. It's dark as all fuck, obviously. You know, I actually avoided swearing on the other two Atlantis episodes so I didn't have to make them explicit and thus make them more able to be shared. But man, when you get into this racist stuff, I just can't help myself. It's super fucking dark, you guys. Like, holy shit, it's dark. Now, obviously, all of this is based in these modern ideas of so, so many things, whiteness being key. Plato had no concept of whiteness as we know it now. He was thinking of Atlantis as simply a culture of barbarians because they weren't Greek. And remember, if you aren't Greek, you're a barbarian. That's just the way it is. That's why they're the bad guys. So who knows what Plato's fictional Atlantis imagined the people to look like if he did at all, at least when it comes to race. But for all his eugenics shit, his intention was still not to create this utopian society of light-skinned people. Because again, there was no concept of this. They were barbarians, and the, most importantly, the thing I will never get over, they were the bad guys. Like, these racist people taking it on, they're just giving themselves away. Atlantis was explicitly an example of what is not a utopia. What is deserving of punishment from the gods.
There are so many fascinating places from the world of Greek myth. The emphasis placed on Atlantis in pop culture and beyond is just so unnecessary. I hope all of this inspires you listeners to take up passions with places and people that are actually from Greek myth or history, come up with a mystical world based on locations from Homer's Odyssey or the ancient Ethiopia of myth, the historical city of Carthage, places from the Greek mainland or Greek islands or hell, lots of mythology beyond the Greeks, I just really only know the Greeks well. We should raise up the story of Akrotiri, a very real ancient city you can visit that gives some of the best examples of life in the Bronze Age Mediterranean and all that it had to offer, the kind of art and architecture that existed, daily life in the world of almost 4,000 years in the past. Spread the word about Atlantis, too. One of my favorite things now is to share the true nature of it when it comes up. Not only that it was simply a thought experiment by a Greek philosopher, but that so much of what we do imagine to be the mythological Atlantis is, in fact, only from the past few hundred years, and often comes with racial undertones that most of us have no idea about. We like the idea of Atlantis because it really is fascinating to think about, like a lost city that could be found, a people shrouded in mystery. But those same things can actually be real, too. There are most certainly cities from the ancient world that have been lost to the sea. There are mysterious people that we don't know enough about. There is an equally fascinating world of technologically advanced ancient people, They're just people like the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, people that did things that we can only imagine and did them so many thousands of years ago. They're just as interesting as Atlantis, but because whiteness has been ascribed to Atlantis very recently in the grand scheme of human existence, because of that, it's given more power and importance than these very real ancient people. And that is just... It's heartbreaking. Even very recently, there are so-called documentaries about finding evidence of Atlantis, real archaeology that gets misinterpreted in the name of ratings, when there could be documentaries about very real ancient people and the archaeologists studying them. Not to say there aren't, but they are not produced in the same way, and it's obvious. And they could be produced in the same way if the people in charge just made a real effort to make actual truthful history and archaeology seem just as exciting as Atlantis pseudo-archaeology. Which it is, it's just about how you market it. It's, it's possible. It just takes people with the loudest voices in the room actually growing a conscience and realizing the harm in advancing ahistorical theories, let alone ahistorical theories with ties to extreme racism. It sounds super cheesy, but honestly, if you take anything away from this series of episodes other than Akrotiri, I hope it's the understanding of why aspects of the modern Atlantis story can be harmful if used in the wrong way. I hope you get how pseudo-archaeology harms very real and important archaeology, how it harms our understanding of very real ancient people, typically the ones who weren't what we now see as white, how much of the understanding of Atlantis that we have today is based in deep, dark, racist, colonial roots. Again, there isn't anything wrong with being interested in Atlantis as Plato wrote about it. 
There isn't necessarily anything wrong with fictionalizing Atlantis, so long as you understand the implications inherent in it, and you are aware of the background and its widespread use today for racist and generally white supremacist ideologies. Still, in my opinion, there are better things you can fictionalize. There are real ancient people who did really incredible things, certainly on par with the original platonic story of Atlantis, because truly there wasn't much in there. So why not invent your own world that's what you're looking for, or find real ancient people who did incredible things, who built pyramids that boggle the mind? These people were much, much more exciting than anything from the nonsensical realm of Atlantis. Real history, real archaeology, real ancient peoples and their mythologies are always going to be more interesting than the fake stuff. We just have to figure out how to get that through the capitalism of it all. Of course, much of what I'm referring to now is a not-so-subtle jab at a certain long-running TV show that suggests ancient people couldn't do what they did, that it must be aliens, and... Recent documentaries that incorrectly portray real, actual archaeologists as having any interest in finding Atlantis. It's all bullshit. It's dangerous lies used to make money. Because no one's ever tried hard enough to get the same ratings and ad dollars from real, actual, ancient people in their worlds. If Atlantis is anything, it's a learning experience. Learn the truth, the history behind the real story, where the modern story comes from and what implications that has, and then decide how you want to use the truth. Honestly, even just having the knowledge is a really good start. Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. This series of episodes has been so many things for me. It felt very odd to spend so much time disproving something that many of you probably don't believe in. I mean, I, I certain many, if not most of you, at least believed Atlantis to be a Greek myth, just like I did. But I don't know the number of people that believe it could be real. Maybe it's higher than I think. I honestly have no idea. Either way, I came to the series having experienced just a hint of the world of those who believe in Atlantis. For real, those who believe in it and their life seems to depend on that. The people I've encountered personally are some of the worst of the internet, similar to the guys who want to tell me about Medusa. They just scream at you about how wrong and ignorant you are because of all their nonsense theories about Atlantis. They have explanations for everything, but none of it actually checks out if you just, I don't know, use some critical thinking skills. It helps to have knowledge in the real ancient world. Anyway, those experiences and the things I've seen over the past year made me want to actually dive into this, to tell you all the real Plato truth of it all, and explain why the truth matters, and why the background to the modern notion of Atlantis matters even more. If you don't know the racist, white supremacist background, how can you know how to take in Atlantis content? How to understand what content is and is not straight-up dangerous ideology? It's so easy to fall into a YouTube trap, thinking you're getting truthful, accurate information, and suddenly you don't even realize and it's turned into deep, horrible, racist propaganda. I hope I've done this series justice. And of course, it's not over yet. On Friday, I have an episode with Steph Homhofer, who tells us even more about the dark history, the people who started it, and the other things those people did. 
We talked archaeological conspiracies more generally and the racist ideologies behind some of them. It's totally fascinating. And Steph and I really had a lot of fun chatting about this. It helps that she's also from my province, which is a rare thrill for me. So stay tuned for that. It's seriously fun. Also on Saturday, I spoke with Kira Jones again, all about the Atlantis of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. You all know how much I love Odyssey. So that too was supremely fun. Stay tuned for it all. And now, every time you hear about the modern ideas behind Atlantis, the crystal energies and the utopian societies, I hope you all imagine the illustration from my logo for this series. Face palm Play-Doh. That's certainly how Plato would look if he knew what had spawned from his random allegorical fiction used to describe actually a fairly dystopian society. He'd smack himself in the forehead and start screaming about Athens. Why would you think Atlantis was better? Were you not paying attention? He would surely yell. I told you all about how perfect Athens is. Don't you know that Athens is perfect? Ah, Plato, what a mess you've made. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Liv, and I love real mythology and real history that doesn't take away from the incredible skills and accomplishments of real ancient people. I love Akrotiri. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo.